from coast to coast to coast. You're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Terra Informa. It is officially spring here in the Northern Hemisphere, which means two things. One, it is currently snowing here in Edmonton, and two, it's time for another News Roundup episode. I'm Hannah Cunningham, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news, stories, and ideas. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Treaty 6 territory, in Miskwitsiwiskaigan, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papas Chase Cree territory. The Papas Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton. Not confined to history, This region is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on. This week, we are catching you up on all of the environmental news headlines that you might have missed over the past month. For our first story, here's Charlotte Thomason to talk about the relationship between the Russian invasion of Ukraine, rising gas prices, and political moves to promote Canadian oil and gas projects. about the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been a constant presence on news sites and social media since the end of February. What listeners have likely also noticed is a big increase in gas prices. This has been accompanied by politicians like our own Jason Kenney talking about the promotion of pipelines. This is a lot to take in. Let's talk about the gas prices first. Import bans on Russian oil shipments have caused a big disruption in the global supply chain. Big as in one of the largest disruptions since World War II, according to Goldman Sachs, which is a large multinational investment bank. Other oil producers have been unable or unwilling to pick up the slack and increase their oil outputs in the short term, which has increased the price per barrel of Brent crude. The price of Brent crude is a benchmark price for African, European, and Middle Eastern crude oil. This pricing mechanism dictates the value of approximately two-thirds of the world's oil production. With rising oil prices comes increases in prices for things like fuel and shipping costs. Now, let's talk about why Canadian politicians have been talking about energy projects in relation to this conflict. In a tone that reads to me as less than empathetic, politicians and energy companies have used the conflict between Russia and Ukraine to sing the praises of Canadian oil versus, quote, 
dictator oil. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, as well as the Canadian Energy Centre, have posted messaging that tout Canadian oil as the solution to reducing the world's reliance on Russia. The Canadian Energy Centre tweeted an image of a soldier with yellow and red title in all caps reading WAR IN UKRAINE, with the following points about Canadian oil. It could reduce U.S. reliance on Russia. Canadian gas could reduce Europe's reliance on Russia. Canadian oil respects human rights and the rule of law. And that the oil and gas sector is committed to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Canada and the United States have placed import bans on Russian crude oil shipments. This is largely a symbolic act, as Canadian imports of Russian oil are pretty small, and in 2020, Canada didn't import any oil from the Russian Federation. Similarly, the U.S. imports of crude oil from Russia represents 3% of U.S. crude oil imports, and 1% of the total crude oil processed by U.S. refineries. The majority of American imported crude in 2021 came from Canada, actually, at 61%. Europe, on the other hand, does rely on Russian oil and gas exports. Russian exports make up almost 40% of Europe's gas and over a quarter of its crude oil. Conservative MPs in Alberta have suggested that Canada can help European countries stop relying on Russia by replacing Russian oil and gas with Canadian oil and gas. However, in an article for the Narwhal by Natasha Belowski, University of British Columbia political science professor Catherine Harrison states that Europe already had plans to move away from Russian oil before the conflict started. Harrison also states that there is a lack of market analysis to suggest that the rest of the world even wants Canadian oil. One reason being that the heavy oil that Canada extracts requires more energy to refine. In an article for the National Observer, Stephen Galbeau, Canada's Minister of Environment and Climate Change, stated that a real sense of energy security, the solution to global energy problems, is to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels like oil and gas, quote, regardless of where it's coming from, end quote. Myself and the Terra Informa team condemn war and imperialism in all its forms. Modern warfare not only has catastrophic impacts on the lives of human beings like we're seeing in Ukraine and Syria and Palestine, it also has large environmental impacts. The U.S. Department of Defense is the country's largest consumer of fossil fuels, and a deployed army typically has a very large carbon footprint. As an example, an article by The Guardian suggests that the U.S. military used over 190 million liters of oil every month during the invasion of Iraq. In the face of politicians and energy-oriented think tanks using the conflict between Russia and Ukraine to promote Canadian oil and gas projects, George Hoberg, a professor at the University of British Columbia's School of Public Policy, says that it's important to keep the climate crisis front and center when considering the implications of such conflicts. Thanks, Charlotte. Now let's move across the globe from Europe to Central America. Here is Elizabeth Dowdell, 
with a headline about the newly elected government in Honduras and their move to ban open pit mining. Just this March, the government of Honduras followed through on a campaign promise to ban open pit mining across the country. Woohoo! Following a campaign focused on fighting crime, poverty, and corruption, President Sumar Castro promised to limit mining because of the human and environmental harms that extractive industries cause. If extractive industries is not a familiar phrase to you, Think of it as a shorthand for the couple of industries, usually metal and mineral mining or oil and gas, that physically and socially transform the world around them. Extractive industries are known for being very well financed, connected to political and other elites, and often damaging to local people and environment. The mining industry in particular has a pattern of avoiding legal responsibility for closure and reclamation costs in a few different countries. And that's bad, because mining can afford it. The extractive industries do billions in business. But funny thing, after a couple decades of open pit mining and other extractive projects, Central American countries like Honduras are not rolling in dough like the transnational mining sector is. Where'd all that money go? The change in Honduran policy direction is thanks to newly elected President Simara Castro. Ms. Castro is the 56th president of Honduras and the first woman to be elected to the position. She's also the first president who is not a member of the right-wing National Party or Liberal Party. That's the first time this has ever happened in Honduras. For reference, the former president of Honduras, Juan Orlando Hernandez, has been accused of stealing elections and is currently being extradited to the United States on drug trafficking charges. The Ministry of Energy, Natural Resources, and Environment announced the good news by declaring the territory free of open pit mining, stating that permits will be cancelled for being harmful to the state of Honduras, threatening natural resources, public health, and limiting access to water. All human rights. Honduras is not the first country to say no to the mining industry. In 2002, Costa Rica banned all new open pit mining projects, and El Salvador banned mining for metals in 2017. One of the most notorious mines operating in Honduras right now is Canadian-owned Aura Minerals. Aura Minerals operates an open pit mine in western Honduras, where it has encountered stiff local opposition, in part due to alleged disturbances of a Maya Chorti indigenous cemetery. Last year, the company shut down operations due to what it described as illegal blockades. Hearing a Canadian mining company would behave badly and do things like disturb sacred indigenous lands or commit human rights abuses in a foreign country might be surprising, but it's actually kind of a habit. If you want to know more about corporate oversight of the Canadian mining industry, we've got some great links on our website. I'm Elizabeth Dowdell for Terra Informa.
Thanks, Elizabeth. If you're just tuning in, this is Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM. This week, we are catching you up on some of the environmental news headlines that you may have missed this past month. So far, we've talked about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and about how the real energy security is decreasing reliance on fossil fuels. We also talked about the newly elected government in Honduras and their move to ban open pit mining. Next, here are your land and water defender updates for this month. On March 16th, a press release was posted on the Yinta Access website with the title, quote, In solidarity with Wet'suwet'en land defenders, celebrities urge City National Bank's parent company, Royal Bank of Canada, to defund Coastal GasLink pipeline, end quote. This press release and the related actions fall under the No More Dirty Banks project. In the press release, It is explained that over 65 Hollywood celebrities have written a letter to City National Bank's parent company, Royal Bank of Canada, or RBC, demanding the immediate withdrawal of financial support for the Coastal GasLink pipeline. This pipeline, which we have talked about in previous updates, will cut through sensitive ecosystems and sacred lands in Wet'suwet'en territory. According to the press release, RBC's contributions to the funding of the Coastal GasLink project include $275 million in project financing, a co-financed $6.5 billion loan, a $40 million corporate loan, and $200 million in co-financed working capital. All of these dollar amounts are in Canadian dollars. RBC also acts as the financial advisor for the pipeline project. Gidimden Checkpoint spokesperson Slato Molly Wickham stated in the press release, quote, Our sacred headwaters, the Wedzinqua River, is the lifeline for our people. By financing Coastal GasLink, CNB's parent company, RBC, is putting us profoundly at risk, end quote. This press release comes after a meeting between hereditary chiefs and CNB and RBC executives, where the chiefs issued formal demands. During this meeting, video footage was shown of police violence, arrests, and raids that have taken place in Wet'suwet'en territory over years as land and water defenders have stood and opposed the pipeline project. The press release also points out the increasing tendency of fossil fuel companies, including Coastal GasLink, to launch ads promoting their Indigenous engagement in their projects. An investigation by The Guardian and Ecobot.net found that fossil fuel companies are spending big dollars on ads conveying Indigenous support for pipeline projects. And these ads spiked last November during a period of Indigenous land defender actions in British Columbia and solidarity actions that took place across Canada. Actions calling for the defunding of the Coastal GasLink project are expected to take place in early April 
when RBC's annual shareholder meetings take place. Now, for our first of two aquatic headlines, here's Sarah Chitsas to tell us about the world's first octopus farm and the ethical debate it has prompted. Our next story is about the wonderfully handy octopus. A Spanish company, Nueva Pascanova, is planning on opening the first ever commercial octopus farm in the country, awaiting environmental approval. If the facility is operational by 2026, the farm would produce 3,000 tons of octopus meat a year, along with a whole lot of jobs. It's understandable why a company would want in on the octopus business. Globally, the octopus trade encompassed $2.7 billion in 2019. But the octopus trade is very tricky. Previous efforts have had tragic results, including high mortality rates, aggressive animals, and even cannibalism and self-mutilation. Yikes. But Nueva Pascanova thinks they've cracked the code with optimizing tank conditions to eliminate aggressive behavior. But even if everything is working logistically, some think the ethics are a little more dubious. With nine neural clusters throughout their bodies, octopi are very smart. Study after study have found remarkable emotional intelligence in octopi, including finding that they can experience emotions like distress and happiness. In aquariums, octopi are known to escape their chambers because of their ability to squeeze through the tiniest holes, their ability to manipulate the environment around them, like unscrewing lids and unplugging things, and especially because of their curiosity. Octopi are the only invertebrate on the planet that uses tools. In nature, octopi often live solitary lives. But replicating this environment in a farm is expensive. The company has been quiet on the exact conditions that the animal lives in, leaving a lot of ambiguity about the ethics of the conditions octopi would be kept in on farms. Even though the octopus is clearly very intelligent, the European Union and Spain animal protection laws do not apply to invertebrate. However, one environmental argument is that natural fisheries are being strained by high demand for the food. Farmed octopus could reduce the depletion of natural octopus stocks. But so could reduce demand for octopus meat. More people switching to non-animal products and alternatives would also reduce demand and reduce harvesting without needing to farm the octopus. The ethics of octopus farming and octopus consumption are much the same as the ethical arguments for any kind of livestock farming and animal consumption, incorporating things like what conditions animals are kept in and the conservation of natural stocks. But for some, the issue might be compounded by the incredible emotional intelligence of the wonderful octopus. The ethics of eating octopus are as clear as the water around an octopus after they become scared and release the contents of their ink sacs. This has been Sarah Chitzas. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Sarah. Our final headline is a little more celebratory in nature. Here is Sonic Patel covering the most star-studded competition of the season. That's right, the voting of the Mollusk of the Year. 
Hello listeners, this is Sonic Patel. Well, it's award season. The Academy Awards were on March 27th, the BAFTAs just a few weeks before that. And with the Grammys coming up quickly, the red carpet has certainly been busted. But I'm here to talk about the most coveted, the most prestigious award of all. Ladies and gentle people, please join me here on the red carpet as we crown 2022's Mollusk of the Year. This distinguished award is organized by the Schenkenberg Nature Research Society, the Lowe Center for Translational Biodiversity Genomics, and Unitas Malacologica, the Worldwide Society for Mollusk Research. The road to Mollusk of the Year began in 2021, when members of the public and scientific community were invited to submit their nominations for the award. In what was surely a grueling and challenging process, the scientists narrowed down the 50 nominations to the final five. The final five went through another round of public votes, with over 16,000 votes being cast. Our winner receives a well-deserved prize. Their genome, the complete set of genetic information in an organism, will be sequenced. This study can be critical to know more about, and ultimately protect, these species. Before we cover our nominees, let's talk about what it means to be Mollusk of the Year. A mollusk is a soft-bodied invertebrate, meaning they have no backbone. Mollusca is a phylum, which, if you remember your taxonomy class, is the second highest level of biological classification. Mollusca is within the kingdom of Animalia, and is one of the largest phyla. Humans have discovered about 100,000 living species, and 35,000 fossil species, making this a big race for the title of Mollusk of the Year. With a lot of species in the category, Mollusks occupy everything from land to saltwater to freshwater, and can be as small as a penny, like some snails and clams, to massive, multi-story creatures, like the giant squid. Mollusks often have a shell, but they don't need to. Snails are mollusks, with their shell functioning like a portable shelter for them. Slugs and octopi are also mollusks, and survive without a shell. When they do have them, shells are calcareous, which means they are mostly made of calcium carbonate, also called lime. The unfortunate fact about these calcium-based shells is that ocean mollusks, like pteropods, are at risk of death, as ocean acidification, caused by more carbon in the atmosphere, dissolves their shells. Many mollusks provide food for humans around the world like clams, oysters, and scallops, and yes, even snails. But more importantly, mollusks are important parts of many, many ecosystems around the world in all sorts of environments. Mollusks have been around for a long time, with our fossil record showing remains from hundreds of millions of years ago. So, with many candidates deserving of the honor of Mollusk of the Year, let's meet our final five. 
First up, the stunning sea butterfly, an aquatic species. This tiny mollusk has wing-like structures that make it seem like it's flying, hence the name. Like the pteropod, the shell is also susceptible to ocean changes from acidification. Sequencing the sea butterfly genome could provide key information on protecting this species. Our next nominee is the painted snail, an endangered species from eastern Cuba. This tiny mollusk is around an inch long, and the well-named snail has a bold and colorful shell. The animal has a unique method of procreation, with one snail stabbing another with a love dart to transfer sexual hormones. The naval shipworm is our third nominee, and don't get it twisted, it looks like a worm, it's called a worm, but this mollusk is actually a clam. These creatures can eat wood and are known to chomp down on old ships. In fact, the humble naval shipworm stranded Christopher Columbus in Jamaica. One of our bigger nominees, the naval shipworm can reach over a meter. Some scientists think that the naval shipworm could be an excellent food source in the future. The telescope snail is our next contender. With a cone-shaped shell that resembles a telescope, the Latin name for this creature is Telescopium telescopium. That's right, the snail so nice, they named it Telescopium telescopium. The species can live in polluted areas when other gastropods are dying. Sequencing their genome may be an insight into how they managed to do so. Finally, last but not least, but actually yes, this did not win, it's the barge footer, a seabed creature in the East Atlantic with a long shell. Understanding this genome will provide more information about scaphopods, a relatively unknown mollusk. And with over 50% of the votes, the winner is... The Painted Snail! This is the Painted Snail's first Mollusk of the Year victory and second nomination. Genome sequencing will help understand the beautiful colors of the shell and support conservation efforts for the species that's threatened by habitat loss and poaching. Our runner-up is the sea butterfly, followed by the naval shipworm. The painted snail joins a prestigious list of mollusks that have won Mollusk of the Year, including the Argonauta Argo, a beautiful octopus. And that's it, this is the second year of competition. Congratulations to the painted snail, and to all of our deserving nominees. May 2022 be another great year for the Mollusk Phylum. From the red carpet, this has been Sonic Patel. Back to you. Thanks, Sonic. That is all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Hannah Cunningham. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. Thank you to everyone who contributed a story this week. If you like what you heard, check out our website, terrainforma.ca, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Terra Informa. 
Catch you next week right here on Terra Informa.